Hello, can you hear me, everyone? Great. Well, thank you so much, everyone, as always, for joining. This is session five of Meta 511. Today, we're going to talk about generative art. And I don't know if this is my favorite art topic in NFTs, but if it's not my favorite, it's very close to my favorite. And in any case, it's a topic I am very, very excited about. So let me see if I can get the presentation up and running. Oh, we have the presentation up and running. So like last week, the presentation is pretty good, not 100% final. There's a couple of tweaks that I would like to make. So we won't mint this right away, but we'll mint it in a few days. And I still owe you the one-on-one -on -one presentation. I want to take a moment on this one in particular and really thank no one zero x he's helped with certain of the prior presentations but this one as you're seeing it today is entirely his work i need to make some small adjustments that i want to add from our interviews but really i did not make this presentation no one zero x made it it's a really he did a really good job and i want to thank him for uh helping me here so let's go through okay let's Let's start here, and I think the first message that I would like to pass along is that generative art is not something new. It's not something that started with NFTs. It's not something that started with blockchains. It has a long history, and the general way that I think about it, that I think someone can think about it, is that part of the output or all of the output or some aspect of the output is generated procedurally, autonomously, um, outside of the artist's control. And so this, to me, is the key point about generative art, which is very different than saying, I'm going to take a photograph and then I'm going to work on it in Photoshop and then I'm going to print it or I'm going to make a painting and all, all of those things are 100% the artist has created it. Here in generative art, of course the art is created by the artist, but the way to think about the art that the artist is creating is to say the artist is creating a system that creates the art, a procedure that creates the art, that has some type of input from the outside world, and that input from the outside world helps generate the piece. So the, we have Art Gnome back in our presentation again, just like we did last week. I would generalize this, right? So, so here it says, a computer introduces the randomness as part of the creation. This is true, it's 100% true, but it doesn't have to be a computer. You have the example at the beginning of Aeolian harps. The wind was creating part of the artwork. You could have a physical object creating part of the artwork. I've even seen generative art where biological processes are creating part of the artwork. And so that where you have actual chemical reactions or biological reactions, that the outcome of those reactions feeds into the artwork. So, yes, it is absolutely true that in practice, 
most generative art, the independent actor, the non-human actor is in fact a computer. But it can be any process that is not the human artist themselves. So generative art as a movement, I think my, my, uh, my sense is it's mid-century. I have it mid-century. You know, these things you can argue if it's the 1960s, the 1940s, the 1950s. I think of it as mid-century. It comes out of a world of um, avant-garde art and futurism and Bauhaus, but it's also, it's a different thing. It's almost impossible to imagine it. it would have developed this way if at the same time you didn't have the first computers coming into use, right? And so I truly think generative art and its breadth in the 1950 to 2020 period, let's say, is in fact linked with the rise of the computer. Just like I'm going to argue that the next phase is linked to the rise of blockchain. So come to that. Could there, would there, are, is there generative art that does not involve computers? Of course. Could there have been generative art in the past without computers? Yes, there could have been and there was. But is it very natural, once you have the power of computation, to think to yourself, how can they, how can uh, computers generate art, generate beauty? And because the nice thing about today's presentation is there's a lot of pictures in it. I'm going to go through all the slides, and we will see some very interesting images, but I'm not going to talk about each one, because if I do, we'll be here for four hours, not one hour. And so some of the things will go through fairly quickly, but what this presentation has is a lot of the historically important generative artists and the currently important generative artists, and by no means an exhaustive list, right? I mean, there's, uh, there's hundreds and there's you know, maybe 15 in this presentation. But for someone who does not know generative art, well, I mean, following up, checking these folks, looking at their work, will start to give you a sense of how this movement has evolved. Um, yeah, and I think this is, this is the part where I'm mostly gonna flip through slides. And I mostly want you to get a sense of the style, as opposed to we need to do a deep dive on each artist. By the way, Herbert Frank very recently passed away, and he was a legend in the field. And just before he passed away, there was an NFT collection of some of his pre-NFT works. He's been working for many decades. And then now there's a lot of tribute collections to him. He's beloved in the community and is thought of as, you know, an important 
pioneer. These era, you can see how they are computer influenced. Right? It's obvious that this, these are things that came up in the era of computers. Similarly, if I asked someone to look at this in yesterday's session, they might say, oh, this is digital art. I'm sorry, last week's session. This is digital art. And is generative art digital art? Yeah, usually, yes. Right? Um, but could this have been digital art and not generative? Yes, of course. Someone could have drawn this. The interesting part is that it was, or I better say, the reason it's classified as generative art is because it was generatively created. Again, giving a flavor at this stage of Vera. Vera is also very interesting. She is, she dropped an, an NFT collection this year at the age of 98. So it's really quite incredible. Um, and it included some of her earliest work and the, she's like Herbert and other artists here considered an absolute pioneer in this field. Again, another set of incredible artists and think of what we just went through as the historic precedent for this field, right? In this field in the NFT space and the blockchain space. What I think is interesting about generative art NFTs is that I, and here's a concept I would like to communicate is that I think they found their natural medium with the blockchain. And in fact, my argument is that the vast majority of the field is generative. And I had a long chat yesterday with Snowfro, which will be released on Monday. And I was very pleased, I was intellectually pleased to hear that he thinks exactly the same thing. In fact, he became involved, he was a generative artist, before NFTs, and he became involved in the NFT space because of the CryptoPunks. He claimed a lot of CryptoPunks. He claimed 34 zombies, which is kind of a mentally mind-boggling number. But he was excited about the CryptoPunks because they were generative. He was a generative artist. And then he went on to found ArtBlocks, which we'll, we'll talk about. And the thing that is accurate, I believe, about the space is most PFP collections are also a light form of generative art. The CryptoPunks were not drawn 10,000 punks one at a time. The CryptoPunks were drawn by an algorithm and a random algorithm. And there are close to a billion possible CryptoPunks. 
people don't think about this, but it's true. Like you see those 10,000 crypto punks and say, oh, I mean, it's kind of obvious that obviously some trait combinations are missing. There's not, for example, a hoodie alien. But if you do the factorial math of how many crypto punks could have been created, it's close to a billion. And of those billion, 10,000 were created, right? So the design space was a billion and actually 10,000 punks were created. And this is generative, it's algorithmic, it has a randomization. It is, in my view, appropriately thought of as generative art. The, and of course it's vastly less complex than the generative art that is um, created explicitly as generative art as opposed to PFPs, but it doesn't change the fact that the PFPs are also generative. In which case, if you look at the space at large and you look at the activity in the space at large, or the market cap, or any, any metric of activity, almost the whole space, so 80% plus, is generative. And this is I think about this all the time, and it was you come at it from both directions. Most of the NFT space is generative, and there has been an explosion in generative art, both in terms of how many artists are working, how many people are collecting, how much value is being transacted in generative art. And I think it is because this is the natural home for it the natural medium for it. And NFTs are a medium that is, has two interesting components. The first interesting component is that it is digital. It's digitally native, right? It's on a computer. Another component is that it is provably it is what it is. It can make, because it's on a blockchain, it can make all types of statements about what it is, and all those statements are provably true. And those two things together suddenly create a framework that didn't exist before that allows you to do very interesting provably true things on a computer and express those as NFTs, right? And so, what do you mean provably true? Well, it's provably true that there's 10,000 participants. If I start drawing 6529 punks by hand, start giving them out, I can tell you that I did 10,000. But there's really no way for me to prove it. Even if, it was, even if the statement was true at a certain point in time, there's no way to confirm later that it stopped being true. Ten years later, I might wake up and say, you know what, I'm going to make another one. There's a very minimal aspect of proving it, but it's nonetheless engineered. You can actually make a hard statement. Exactly 
και αυτό είναι project. Correcting other ones, you can see that in the contract itself, when you go to them, you see the contract. And the contract will take in a form of randomness. Um, in the simple ones, it's completely the same. And it's the randomness. And so then it is provably true that the project creators did not know in advance which PFPs would appear. They do not know which are the good ones. They do not know which are the bad ones. They don't know if you need the 6529 if you can have a good or a bad one. It's probably true what the traits are. On the generative side, the generative art side, on art blocks, still for all on Monday we'll talk about this a lot, they have an extremely sophisticated algorithm to generate surroundings. It takes into account many, many variables. And it's basically impossible to have replicated these. So, one thing people sometimes think, let's say I was, this here is a Fidenza, Fidenza 313. Um, okay, sorry, I had a comment that we have a sound issue. You pause for a second and see. What it might be so, how long has the sound been breaking up? Has it been going on from the beginning or just in the last um, just the last couple of minutes? Okay, here it's just the last couple of minutes. Nothing's changed in my setup, so I don't know if maybe I'm having a temporary internet issue somewhere along the way. So let me give it a minute or two and see if it improves. Um, because nothing's changed. I haven't touched anything. I haven't touched any So it might be a network issue along the way. Is it any better now? Is it, any... Is it better now? Okay, I'm getting some feedback that it's better. So I'm going to... It sounds like I started breaking up at 1 billion crypto punks. Okay. So, all right, I think, I think it must just be a network issue somewhere. All right, so let's, let's, I'll repeat the last couple of minutes and keep going. So we were saying what things are provably true in, in NFTs. That there are, oh, wait a second, I got broken up with a billion crypto punks. All right, so sorry about this. I'm going to try, I'm going to start my train of thought again on things that are provably true. And we'll talk about things that are provably true. And if there's a little bit of repetition, I apologize. Well, what I was saying is NFTs are not, it's not a surprise that NFTs are largely generative and generative has done incredibly well in the era of NFTs because NFTs combine two 
distinct features. They're in computers. They are digital. And they're on blockchains. And what do we know about blockchains? We know that blockchains can make provably true statements. And so you might ask, well, what does this mean? Why is this relevant to everything? What do you mean by provably true statements? And I'll go through some of them. The first provably true statement you can make, take something like the CryptoPunks, is that there are 10,000 CryptoPunks. And this sounds trivial. You say, like, well, why is this? I mean, why is this hard? Why is this a big deal? Well, you can't actually do this. You can't actually do this with non um, NFTs, right? If I started drawing six five to nine punks and started handing them out, or selling them in a gallery, or selling them on my website. And I said, I'm going to make 10,000 of them, but no more. There's no way for me to prove that. There's no way for you to know that I didn't make 10,001. I might have one hidden in my closet. Even if it's true, even if you audited me, checked up in all my cupboards underneath my desk, said like, oh, okay, we're convinced. 6529 only made 10,000 punks. Well, a year from now or 10 years from now, I could change my mind. I could decide to make another one. So this ability to make a hard commitment on, just take the most simple thing, that there are 10,000 CryptoPunks is new. Anyone can go audit it. Anyone can go to the blockchain and see that that contract has exactly 10,000 tokens. And that's done, it's not gonna change. The second part that you can do, and let me start again with the easy mode, which is PFPs. You can prove that the collection was algorithmically generated and that the collection was not previously known by the creators. So a common structure of a PFP contract is that it brings in a source of randomness from Chainlink, it's another blockchain. And that, that's an oracle. And that source of randomness determines what traits you get in your PFP at the time that you mint it. And so that way, they the creators don't know what exactly the collection will look like. They don't know which PFPs would be quote unquote the good ones, right? And the, the, um, it's provably random, it's provably algorithmic. And you know this because the contracts on the blockchain and the PFPs are on the blockchain. They're, auditable by anyone. This actually gets even more complicated in actual generative art collections. So I had a long discussion about this with Snowfro, the founder of Artblocks, yesterday, and that session is going to be released on Monday. 
And Artblocks has a very sophisticated process to generate pseudo-randomness. So when you mint something, when you mint an Artblocks pieces, it takes all types of data from the internet and even from your own wallet and creates the randomness that generates the piece. So one thing that people sometimes think that is not actually accurate is let's say you minted Fidenza 314. What is up here on this slide is a very well-known Fidenza that I had collected over a year ago. It's Fidenza 313, the tulip. It's considered a very nice Fidenza. And let's say you minted Fidenza 314 and you think to yourself, oh man, if I just if I just had minted a little bit earlier, I would have gotten Fidenza 313. You would have not gotten Fidenza 313. You would have gotten, you might have gotten Fidenza token 313, but it would not look like the tulip. Because at that exact moment in time that you press the button, all of the different pseudo-random variables that go in and determine how the image will look would have been different. And on something like Fidenza's, I'm not sure it's even calculable how many potential ones there are. I think it might be unbounded. I haven't done the math to double check, but I think it might be unbounded. And so there is this endless universe of possible Fidenza's, and then there was a thousand that were minted, and those 1,000 were in a way co-created with the collector, the minter, because the specific Fidenza that was specifically created at that point in time had to do with when, when you pressed the button and who you were and from which wallet you minted and so on. This is something very new, very different, right? Like it doesn't, it is very different than the traditional way generative art was made, where you go to your studio, you would create an algorithm, you would run the algorithm yourself, you'd see a lot of outputs, You'd pick some, let's say your five best, and then you take, you make them real in some type of physical object. Maybe you printed them. Maybe you did an installation that included your computer. And then you took it to the gallery and you said, look, here are five really nice pieces. And I made them with my algorithm. Everyone says, oh, they're very nice. And I'd like to collect them and put them on my wall. And this is wonderful and fine, and this is, there's nothing wrong with what I just said. But what is happening today with generative art collections is much richer, much more exciting. Here what happens is an artist creates an algorithm. That algorithm is provably, understandably, that algorithm. You can't fake it. This is the algorithm. And when people mint, random variables are pushed into the algorithm and the pieces come out. And so it is 100% true that 
Tyler Hobbs, the creator of Fidenzas, did not know which Fidenzas would be created until the Art Blocks Mint ran and a thousand Fidenzas were created. Well, in, this is both, I think, possibly a higher level of challenge, right? Because a very good collection of this type has to produce good outputs across the whole collection. You don't have the luxury of having 10,000 outputs of which 9,900 are not very good, but five are interesting. You take that, you say, look, my algorithm made these five, which is fine. There's no problem with that. But you've made five good outputs. You have to create hundreds of good outputs. And you don't have to, but it'll be more valued if it does. And in some way, and this is a small way, and we'll talk about another collection where it's a bigger way, the collector was a co-creator with you. A sort of mechanical co-creator, to be honest, in this case, but nonetheless a co-creator. Tyler Hobbs generated a term for this. He called it long-form generative art. It's on the next slides. But the idea of long-form generative art is where the artist does not select the pieces. The pieces are created by the algorithm in combination with the minters, and everyone discovers at the end what the collection looks like. And what is thought to be interesting in these collections, what collectors look for, what I look for, for those who don't know, I'm thought of as pretty good in collecting generative art. And the mental model that I think we mostly have is the following. Are the outputs, the art, visually appealing or interesting, right? A. B. Do they look sufficiently different from each other? Right? An algorithm that creates the same image but changes a couple of colors is not hugely interesting. An algorithm that creates a widespread of surprising images, it's more interesting. And then the third part is, does the collection nonetheless hold together and do the pieces look like they came from the same collection? This is challenging. There's hundreds of generative art collections, thousands of generative art collections out there. And I respect and love all of them, but also obviously some people have succeeded in creating higher levels of complexity in their work, more aesthetically interesting, and hitting these three parameters, that they're aesthetically interesting, they are, each piece is different, and that the um, pieces are unified within a collection. This is what we've now, and I think, Tyler certainly popularized the term, is what we call long-form generative art. Now, what you're looking at here on this slide, there's another Fidenza. Then the middle is Ringers by Dmitry Cherniak, who is another exceptional generative artist. And on the right is a chromy squiggle by Snowfro, who we'll see on Monday. And short form, 
You see, this is, this is not, I mean, we're showing Fidenzas as a short form at the top, but obviously Fidenzas are not short form. Short form would be if the traditional model, the artist generates a variety of outputs by themselves and then picks some and says, we're going to mint these. Long form is the artist doesn't select any at all. We will discover what the pieces are when they are minted uh, by the minters when they are co-created by the artists and the collectors. It is possible that I'm heard, but I find this absolutely fascinating, absolutely amazing, thrilling, to be honest. Every The major platform today for long-form generative art has been art blocks. There's new ones popping up now, but historically it's been art blocks. And multiple times a week, or sometimes every couple of weeks, they have new props, new collections that are minted. And the it is genuinely, to me, very exciting. I'm often there at the drops. Sometimes I'm in, sometimes I'll collect afterwards. And what's interesting is seeing the art be created in real time in front of you. You will see as people mint, new pieces are created, new outputs are created, and you can see how the collection is being formed. And you're seeing it at the same time as the artist is seeing it. Right? Like that's incredible. And not just you. You is not a collector. You could be literally anybody on the planet. Anybody on the planet can be sitting there refreshing the collection as people mint and watching a collection of art, a collection of work being created in real time, provably from the algorithm, provably the way the artist says it is. I find this absolutely fascinating, absolutely interesting, super interactive and engaging. I also think it is somehow reflective of an era we are entering. And the era we are entering, well, we've really been there for probably a couple of decades, but it will continue to be this way. We're in an era that is a very much a hybrid era of humans and machines. If you took away from me my computer and my cell phone, which is just another computer, of course. I am not the same person. I am nowhere near as effective. I am used to using them to do everything it is that I do, right? From the most simple thing, calling a friend, sending an email, making a presentation, tweeting, buying things, selling things, we are in a hybrid environment. And generative art as it is today is an extremely well blended hybrid environment of person and machine, the person being both the artist, the machine in this case being the blockchain and the computation around it. It's not just the blockchain's computation and the minter and collector. And one of the um, 
Now this is Manoloid is a legendary, legendary Argentinian generative artist. Manoloid works primarily in short form, but his work is exceptional. I mean, those red trees, it's another piece that I had collected with some of my colleagues. I mean, it's wild that that is created by a computer, right? It's an incredible piece of work. But this this hybrid hybrid um, environment, this human machine hybrid environment, I think is reflective of how we live now. Right? This is this is who we are, and so the it's very well suited to our age, in my view. And I think we will see a lot more of it, right? This doesn't, we spoke last week that there was one of one art and digital art and crypto art. And one of one art really is just art, right? And digital art's a subset of one of one art, but digital art is getting pretty broad and diffuse. And a lot of things are digital art, and it's not clear that just including a digital tool in art is necessarily reflective of it being digital art anymore. Maybe it really needs to kind of interact with the medium more. And then crypto art being a subset of digital art, crypto art is very clearly an aesthetic movement. And on NFTs, there's going to be NFTs, of course, are digital in the broad sense. They include an NFT token that's digital. But there's clearly going to be a wide variety of aesthetics in the NFT space, not just crypto of traditional landscape photography, right? That's a aesthetic. But crypto art certainly will be an important movement that reflects the space. Generative art, I view it almost closer to digital art in the sense that it's a horizontal technology. It's a horizontal technology that impacts how you can do many, many things. So we look at PFPs are one top so explicit generative art. I'm breaking up again, so let me let me just pause for a second and see if it goes away. All right, try again now. How am I now? Am I still breaking up? Continue to tell me how we are. Okay, looks like I might have some um, sporadic network difficulties here, so I apologize about that. Oh, I'm hearing it's still not okay. I'll give another minute or two. It seems to have gone away from the, the, the uh, one. Yeah, let me give it another minute or two. Okay, let me try again now. How is my voice now? Okay, uh, it looks like it was sporadic and it has passed. So, what I was saying, I think generative art is closer to digital art in that it's a horizontal technology, and I think we will see its application everywhere. So, we've seen its application in PFPs. We have seen its application in fine art. Fidenzas are fine art. 
I think we will see its application in gaming. I think we will see its application in metaverse spaces. I think we will see its application in consumer products. Artblocks has now created an API that allows people to make anything generative. And so what do I mean by anything? One example, which I don't know if we'll succeed in doing, I had told George about this, and if we can figure it out, we will do this, is to make the course certificates at the end generative so that everyone, of course, will have the same information on them. They'll be, I assume, a Unix logo, but there will also be some aspect of the course certificate that will be generative and will be unique to each certificate holder. This ability to both mass, have mass craftsmanship, mass personalization, um, and also provably so, right? Provably that it's unique to you and provably that it came from this artist or creator. I think it's very interesting. I think it is going to make the world, and I mentioned this to Still, for all I think it'll make the world a more beautiful place. We used to have non-scalable craftspeople, right? 150 years ago, 200 years ago, pre-industrial manufacturing. Everything was unique because individuals were making it. And then we have mostly gone through 150, 200 years of things being extremely standardized. And the reason they're standardized is because the demands of making things at high volume, at low prices, push them to standardization. And that's fine, it's great. We've had a higher quality of life because of that. Cars are better and cheaper because they come in specific models and not each one is handcrafted. So are chairs and tables and iPhones. Now we have the beginning of a technology that for certainly digital goods and virtual goods and goods in that part of our live society economy that's going to be an increasing part of that that are going to be more crafted more individualized more personalized less mass produced and then there's a very interesting question Sindoro was saying, oh, he hopes he, we can see this in, um, in physical goods, too. It's not totally clear to me how that might happen, but maybe with 3D printing, right? If you had a generative algorithm with 3D printing, you could actually start seeing this in physical goods, too. But for sure, in the, in the short term, um, we will see this in digital goods and virtual goods and NFTs and in anything in the kind of metaverse environment. Now, let's go through a few kind of background slides that I think people should probably know for in the NFT generative world. So the autoglyphs are largely believed to be the first on-chain um, generative art NFTs 
amazingly, or maybe not amazingly, they were by made by the Larva Labs team, which is the same team that made the CryptoPunks. And it's both amazing that they did the punks and they did the autobus. It's also not amazing because both of them were generative, right? So it's the same thought process. What is very interesting about the autoglyphs is that all the instructions to make them are 100% on-chain. So you can just have the token. If you have the token, you know how to draw the autoglyph represented by that token. There was then a kind of break of, I don't know, year, year and a half, where there wasn't a ton of activity in generative art, and then on-chain generative art. And then there was, with the chromy squiggles and construction token and, you know, art blocks, the platform kick-started a huge, a huge um, explosion in generative art collections. Some very high percentage of the market cap of generative art is actually art blocks collections somewhere in the 80 percent range because several hundred collections were created on the platform that eric snowfall snowfall created and it was the hub of this activity it still is though what is happening now and it's natural and healthy more platforms are emerging and so i think that percentage will obviously go down over time but between for those and the, the, this part of the presentation is of course very uh, straightforward for those who are in the space autoglyphs and then art blocks i think were very important foundational steps in on-chain generative art let's talk a little bit about on-chain ness and what um, what we mean when it's on, uh, what we mean when it's on, it's on chain. Uh, okay, this is what new called on chain purity. Okay. So let's work through this chart. Level three, zero dependencies means that everything you need to regenerate the piece is in the token itself. And so you don't need anything from anyone's server. You don't need anything even from decentralized storage like IPFS or Arweave. The only condition for the artwork surviving is the blockchain that you have used. Typically Ethereum, and there's a platform called FXHash on Tezos that is also popular for generative art, is that that blockchain survives. If that blockchain survives, within the token itself, you have, you have everything you need to do to um, recreate the artwork. Level two says one dependency, and I put in or zero because Snow was telling me some artists are now uploading the libraries into the um, 
into the project. So I want to dig into that a little bit more because I think there might be some projects that are art blocks and are level three. I'm not 100% sure about this, so I need to double check this. But there is the code is for Artblocks project is on the blockchain. And then they're rendered using some libraries. But I do believe for some new projects, the libraries are also on chain. So the whole piece is on chain. So I want to dig into this with Snow and we might update the slide a little bit. Another interesting thing about Artblocks projects is they're resolution independent. And this is a condition for minting on the platform and really smart future proofing. They should work the same way on today's screens of 4K, but also in 8K, 16K, 32K, 64K. I don't know where we'll end up to over time, but however high resolution the screen will be in the future, the piece should render natively in that resolution. The, the code is resolution independent. Yeah, level one, they are created randomly on blockchain, but the image itself is off blockchain. Most PFPs are like this. Um, one is an interesting project called Cyber Brokers that then minted the images on chain as well. I think it cost them 70, 80 ETH. But so the images themselves are also on blockchain. And even here, there's an interesting question. It's not necessarily the case that the developer can change the pointer. You could have a contract that is sent to the burn address or the owner's the, owner's the burn address. It points to Arweave. Um, then your certainty of provenance is Ethereum plus Arweave surviving, right? Two things surviving. It does not necessarily mean that you have to trust the developer. Um, it does mean that there are two aspects that are needed. So someone might ask, well, why are we, why is this all happening? Why are, why are people doing this? Well, it's because on, on major blockchains, blockchain space is expensive. So putting even a two, three megabyte photo even in low gas times onto the Ethereum blockchain will end up costing tens of thousands of dollars. And this is, and larger files, you can't actually get them all on the block. You have to break them up and it'll be hugely expensive. It's effectively not viable. And so this is another thing that I think pushes generative art, pushes certain uses of NFTs to generative art because the instructions to draw something are generally much cheaper to store than the end image. And so, now, I want to be clear, this is not necessarily a problem. Like, I collect photography on chain. Photography is not generative. It's not stored on the blockchain. What I would like to see, though, is that it's at least stored on a decentralized storage provider like IPFS or Arweave. What I would feel uncomfortable with, or what I do feel uncomfortable with, 
is projects where it's stored on someone's server. The thought that the server will survive for years and decades, centuries, is highly unlikely, right? People will not be around to, uh, to hold that together. So, um, yeah, this is Artblocks, FXH, we discussed it. Yeah, we should mention Def Beef, it is, it is fully audiovisual on-chain. These were very, very famous pieces. Some of them sold famously for an awful lot of money. And again, it is extremely uh, cutting-edge work for its time. I had shown some of this in my prior presentations. Graphic Anadol does incredible generative work. This is Casa Butlo that we had collected, which here, it's not long form generative. It's one piece. But it is generative in that the artwork is being determined by data from environmental sensors. And so the it is generative in the classic sense of generative art, and then it is, of course, represented on a blockchain, but the data in this case is coming off-chain. It's not coming from you know, chain link or something like that. It's actually coming from Barcelona, from the house itself. And so it's a more classic approach to generative art, hybrid in a way, but represented ultimately by an NFT. And yeah, this is how. This is how um, it looks when represented physically in a very large and a very large screen. I am going to stop here for today. The we have a huge, huge, huge number of guests in the generative art space that are coming into the course. So what I wanted to accomplish today is give you the frameworks. And so the frameworks of why it's an interesting art movement, why it's an interesting medium for generative art, how the space is largely generative, what long form means, what short form means, what um, some key checkpoints were in the history of generative art. And then we're just going to have a huge number of interviews, one-of-ones, panels with generative artists. I hope you can watch many or most of them because those get much more sophisticated than this. And again, this session is meant to give you the base level to enjoy and understand what we're talking about in the other sessions. And then... And I apologize for this, but I think practically there is no other way this is going to happen. As those happen, I'm going to come back and update this presentation a little bit. Put some concepts in that come out through the interviews. And then distribute the final one a few days down the line. That reflects everything we've learned through the next week, week and a half. So again, I want to thank No One Zero X for... Quite frankly, this week, if it wasn't for him, there wouldn't have been a presentation at all. So uh, he did a great job, and I want, I want to thank him. And 
but I do want to incorporate what we're going to learn from these amazing artists who are going to the question from the news. And therefore, these for slides with those buildings. So, I'm going to stop the kind of formal presenting part of the presentation. I've been talking to George about this. We are. I want to go to Q&A, I was trying to go this way, try and keep the sessions, my sessions, to about an hour of talking instead of, instead of an hour and a half, and a half. So, I, I don't know if I'm breaking up and I can answer questions. Can you? Am I breaking up? Do we have questions? Or do we stand? Can you hear me now? I'm going to try speaking again to see if you can hear me. Okay. What I wanted to say is, I don't know where you lost me, but let me recap the last couple of minutes. As with last week's presentation, we truly have an incredible set of generative artists who are going to join the course. And so the goal today was to give you the framework to understand those conversations that are going to be a lot more sophisticated than these. So the frameworks were that this appears to be a natural medium. NFTs appear to be a natural medium for generative art. Um, these, what long form and short form is, what were key points in on-chain generative art, what does on-chain mean? And so with these frameworks in place, we're going to talk to Snowfro. We're going to talk to top generative artists. And what I'd like to do is have you join as many of those discussions as possible, and then incorporate learnings from those discussions into this presentation, into the final version, um, because it would be a shame not to do so, and then we'll distribute it, mint it, and so on. And so I'd like to go to Q&A now. We're going to try to keep the course sessions, these the non-interview sessions, a touch shorter. So we're going to try and keep them to about an hour, then with time with Q&A, so maybe it'll be an hour and 15, an hour and a half, because previously they were going to an hour and a half, plus Q&A, they were going to close to two hours, so it gets quite long. So I'd like to take a break here, go to Q&A. We also have several more hours of generative discussion coming with the guests, so I think we're in really good shape. So team, if you can help me with the Q&A, if there is Q&A, that would be appreciated. Oh, okay. I have found a few questions. How does an artist know that the pieces will fit together as a collection if they don't know what will be minted? The artist is running the algorithm before they take it onto the blockchain. Right? So someone creates an artist, someone creates an algorithm, they run it on their computer, they work on it, they see the outputs, they work on it some more, they see the outputs, they work on it some more, and they have the ability to see what type of outputs it's generating. Once they're happy with the outputs, once they're happy with the outputs, then um, they take it on blockchain, 
and then they'll discover what the specific outputs are that are created at that point. But they'll have no idea which ones those will be. The design space for some of these algorithms is utterly gigantic. There is a project currently open called QQL. It's by Tyler Hobbs and Dandelion. And here, it's very interesting, the way the minting works is anyone can play with the different parts of the algorithm, generate outputs, and decide if they want to mint their output. So the, this collection is a thousand pieces, like many other ones of these collections. That's a thousand pieces. But instead of the collectors kind of being conceptually a co-creator, because when they press the mint button and what their computer is being important, here they are literally actually uh, co-creators because they are looking through the output space and deciding which ones they want to mint. So in QQL, they've sold mint passes. So there's a thousand mint passes. So the maximum number of QQLs who, which will happen, which will ever exist are a thousand, but the collectors will get to pick them. And this is super interesting because we have now, I don't even know what the number is, a few weeks ago, collectors had created 5 million outputs or something and had minted about 100. And I bet the number's more than 10 million now, and I think there's 139 minted. And so there will be this gigantic output space. And from that output space, only a thousand of them will ever make it into finally being, finally being QQLs. And I think it's a fascinating exercise. It's the URL is qql.art. And I recommend it to people as a way to learn. I think it's a great educational tool. I think I need to put it in the presentation of if you go and create outputs on qql.art, and you can do this for free and change the different parameters and see how the algorithm changes. It's super, super interesting. And you get a sense of how these algorithms work and how broad and deep they can be. It says, if the collector mints, where does the pay come from for the artist? How is the artist paid? Oh, that's very, that's very uh, simple. When you mint, you pay to mint. That payment goes to the artist, or most of it goes to artists. There might be a platform fee. Artists might also receive royalties on resale. But the royalties discussion is a big complicated discussion. The discussion that is for sure true is that they will receive the primary revenue. The revenue when you mint uh, goes to the artist. Uh, how does the artist control things? Well, the artist controls things by making the algorithm, but once the artist releases the algorithm on the blockchain, the artist no longer controls things. That's what's super interesting about this. The algorithm controls things. 
Uh, can we find patterns between the mentor and the algorithm using AI? No, I mean, it's not. You can see what the algorithm is. The algorithm is not secret. And you can see that it, what will the algorithm will produce if you put different values in. And the values that you put in create the different types of pieces. And the pseudo-randomness creates the values. And for something like art blocks, the pseudo-randomness is so sophisticated that you're not going to be able to reverse engineer it. There's a couple of other questions effectively about reverse engineering um, the algorithm. You're just not going to be able to. I mean, that's the short answer. Um, next question. Why are NFTs in most cases rectangular? This is a great question. I mean, the real question, why is, why is most NFT art rectangular? And I think it's because that's what we're used to in the physical world. And I think that will change over time because there's less, there are fewer reasons for them to be rectangular in a digital world. How, how to rank different generative art projects? Well, that's, well, I'm certainly not going to answer that question by ranking them. I think the general concepts that people look at are the output itself from an artistic perspective. Is it aesthetically interesting? Is it technically challenging? Um, what type of output is produced? A. B. Are the pieces sufficiently differentiated from each other? And C. Does it hold together as a collection? Now, you might say, well, this is very qualitative. And yes, that's true. It's Judgmental. This is how art works. But there is broad consensus on which collections have resonated better with collectors. And you can see that in the price of them. And so if you can, there are several hundred collections on art blocks. That's a useful comparative set. And you can go to various tools. The Unit team has a tool. It's NFT valuation tool and sort them by market cap. The ones with higher market cap are for the are on the whole um, valued more. Now, it's also early. Some of these collections are a year old, a year and a half old, six months old. I would expect that this will also change over time because this is what happens with art over time. People, societies, have time to reflect on different artwork. And what might seem very important in 2022 might seem less important in 2042, and vice versa. So I wouldn't necessarily say those are today's consensus opinion will be forever tomorrow's consensus opinion. Some pieces might be ahead of their time. It's very common with artists, right? Like some that artists are ahead of their time. And then over time, people look back and say, my God, this artist was actually saying something very important. And we're only appreciating it now because they were ahead of us. So I don't think of it as a static environment. But I do think that if you went and asked a bunch of folks who collect generative art, what are their 10 favorite collections? 
most of them would probably give you five or six that are the same with each other and three or four that are different. Um, and that's fine. And that, as the space gets bigger and we see more types of work and more diversity of work, it'll be less like that. Right? And then there'll be sub-styles and sub-areas and sub-communities. Because I think generative art will be like digital art, a horizontal aspect, not an aesthetic aspect, a technique, not an aesthetic. Um, why is Decagon so affordable-free when compared to other generative art collections? Decagon is an evolving generative art project run by Deco, which is an art display, NFT display platform. The reason it's affordable slash free is it's being done by the firm to help promote Deco. And so the business purpose there isn't to generate money from selling NFTs, but to create something interesting, generative for the community of folks, the DECA community. And, you know, it's the, it's the community token in a way. But like we said before, how things can be generative in nature, it's a generative token and it's designed to incent activity on the platform. So the more things you do on DECA, the more complicated your generative piece becomes. Uh, what makes a gener great generative artist? Do they have to be great coders? I think it helps to be good. There is this concept of, depends how you want to say it, like partnership, positively, negatively, ghost coding, where the artist has the inspiration, someone else codes generative code. But I think the first concept's more appropriate. Uh, many things can be done in partnership with other people. I think that some of the top generative artists are quite good at coding. Maybe not 100% all of them, but like certain of them are very, are thought to be quite good at coding generative art. It's certainly, I mean, it's not a substitute for aesthetic sensibility. You have to have both, but it's certainly not a minus, right? Like certainly like if you have aesthetic sensibility, the better your coding skills are, the more likely you are to be able to implement your vision in code. So I think it's, I think it's helpful. How will generative art evolve and be like in 2030? Yeah, I would consider, I would put it backwards. Instead of saying like, how will generative fine art evolve? I mean, there's going to be all types of things in generative fine art, right? I mean, I can't predict all the artists of 2030. I would say, just like I keep saying, like it's more like digital art, that generative art will, generative techniques will diffuse into everything. Um, and so what I'm comfortable is the case about 2030 is that the world at large, for sure the digital world, and possibly parts of the physical world, will have generative components. Are there, I'll put two questions together. Um, are there CC0 coding templates we can make derivatives with? And how do you, where do you find out about creating generative art algorithms? So this is a very good question. 
and I think we need this in the presentation. And George, if you can flag it to make sure we do add it to the presentation, and I think we can actually, it's a question we should ask to our guests of what are the best tools for someone who wants to get involved in generative art? It's a really great question, and I think we should have, we should have it in the reading as a specific slide that says, I'm interested in generative art, I want to be a generative artist, or I want to experiment with being a generative artist. What are the best places we go to first? So I think that would be that would be super neat. Um, are mimetic derivatives a form of generative art, but more manual at the level where the original meme is the algorithm and the derivative artist is the manual input? No, I wouldn't think of it that way. I don't think of it that way. I think generative art means that there is a part of the art that is being created, the actual output that's being created that is procedurally created, that is created in an automated manner without human intervention. Uh, that's what it means to me. Okay, I think we're pretty good on the questions, so I think I'm going to wrap up here. Uh, thank you everyone once again. Sorry about the internet issues, but I think they're out of my control. I think they're actually network-wide. Um, and we'll edit it. The nice thing is we'll edit the presentation, edit out the me checking if the sound is on, and release the presentation in the next couple of days. And then please do keep an eye out on a ton of uh, interesting guests coming through. So the next two are people, which will be tomorrow. And so far, which will be on Monday. And they're both the most great. Thank you very much. Oh, I've Can you hear me now? Okay, can you hear me now? All right, so what I was going to say is, again, thank you very much for joining today. Sorry for the audio issues, but I do think it's a network-wide issue. Um, so we will edit out these parts. Um, before releasing the video. We have a lot of great artists joining, so how about now? Am I better now? Am I better now? Okay, well, I think we should. I don't have any time. Okay, so I'm going to We can make the announcements. We can make the announcements. In Palm, we can make them online in Discord. I don't think we should keep people hanging around. One more try, can you hear me? We gotta close it. Gotta close it off.